The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Matthew Barney, Ikshan Adams, Eileen Agar and more as we explore some of the international art on view in London's reopened museums. And in New York, it's Louise Bourgeois and Sigmund Freud. I talked to Ralph Rugoff about Matthew Barney and Ikshan Adams, two very different artists exploring autobiography, social issues and dance, among much else, at the Haywood Gallery. Louisa Buck talks to Laura Smith as the Whitechapel Gallery unveils two shows about surrealism and women artists, a solo show of Eileen Agar's work and an archival show about women's role in the movement. And for this week's Work of the Week, Philip Larratt-Smith discusses Passage Dangereux by Louise Bourgeois, a work in a new show, Louise Bourgeois, Freud's Daughter, at the Jewish Museum in in New York. Before all that, news of a forthcoming event from the art newspaper. On the 3rd of June, to coincide with the first edition of London Gallery Weekend, we're exploring the real impact of the pandemic on London's galleries and the steps they're taking to survive. Join three gallerists, Sadie Coles of Sadie Coles HQ, Bommy Odufunadi of Goodman Gallery and Jeremy Epstein of Adela Santi with the moderator Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent. For what now? How London's gallery scene can survive in a post-pandemic world. That's on Thursday the 3rd of June at 4pm BST, 11am EST on Zoom. Find out more at theartnewspaper.com. Now, as England, Wales and Northern Ireland's museums finally reopen, the Hayward Gallery in London has two shows full of powerfully physical art. There's Matthew Barney's Redoubt, featuring enormous copper and brass sculptures, electroplated engravings in the same materials, and a new film shown on an enormous screen that knits together complex themes and is loosely based on the Diana and Actaeon myth from Ovid's epic poem Metamorphoses. And then, alongside Barney's show, is Kicking Dust, a major new installation by Ikshan Adams, a young South African an artist with varied textiles creating a deeply atmospheric environment. I spoke to the Haywards director, Ralph Rugoff, about pulling off these complex installations during a pandemic and about the art itself. And note that when Ralph refers to coloured communities in South Africa, that's the official name for mixed race people in the country. Ralph, before we talk about the specific shows, let's talk a little bit about what it is to put on a show in a pandemic, because we still are within it. And is it right that the sort of technical background to how you put together a show is quite complex? You're having to work in bubbles and all that sort of thing. It is quite complex. And the two shows we just opened, one, we had to bring an artist from South Africa to London. Then we had to bring an artist from New York and some of his studio people to London. The work in one case came from China and the other from South Africa. And then you've got two different teams working on two different shows. They have to be sequestered differently. They arrive for work at different times. They take their lunch breaks at different times. Everyone's wearing masks. You're dealing with incredibly intricate types of sculpture in both examples that really mean people have to be working pretty close to each other. But you know, everyone wore masks. Everyone followed the rules. No one got ill and it worked. So I really do think if you're careful and you have a little luck, um, it's possible to work under these circumstances. I mean, God knows we're all really looking forward to being able to work (laughs) as we used to. But in the meantime, this is completely doable. Right. And last time we spoke, 
was during the uh, the real height of the pandemic when there were real worries about the Hayward and South Bank Centre and how how is that now and and for instance you know at that time there was loads of staff being laid off and things like that so so how is the Hayward staffing how is how is all that side of it you know we're I have to say we're a little short staffed I mean you know but we had to get our payroll reduced enough to be able to have a financial model where we could survive in a pandemic with reduced income because you know London's not getting any foreign tourists with reduced income from the kind of retail businesses that support South Bank Center, right? All the restaurants on the site, they're all way down. So we're in a kind of, you know, survival mode package right now. And um, I think we'll probably have, you know, anywhere from six months to two years before we're approaching the kind of normal revenues we would have in a year. But the good news is that we can survive in this mode no matter what happens. I think it was extremely tough on staff. Most people were furloughed, they were alone. They weren't able to get any of the emotional charge that you get from doing something you love, from being with the people you work with. That made everything 10 times more intense in terms of the negative feelings they were having to suffer through. It's been a really difficult period, but I just keep thinking that there's no great, you know, undertaking in life that doesn't have its obstacles and daunting challenges. And that by coming through these, I think we're going to end up stronger. And, you know, the expression, don't let a good crisis go to waste. I think one of the things that has come up during this crisis was also a much more intense focus on equality and diversity and inclusion. You know, the timing of the whole Black Lives matter resurgence in June last year around the death of George Floyd. And that has also propelled us and a lot of organizations into a major rethink of how we move forward, how we can change, you know, so that that EDI isn't just an acronym, it's how we're living as an organization. So lots and lots of things going on, which of course are very difficult when you're not in the same room with everyone else. Let's talk about some art, because I think one of the things that I was really conscious of when I returned to the Hayward the other day was just the physicality of the shows that you've put on and and how much of an antidote they are to yes there's a big film but even the film is a massive antidote to the tiny screens that we've been looking at for the last year yeah I mean in that film for its first time it's ever been shown with a 16 channel sound system so it is extremely physical you're immersed in all this really wonderful, very subtle sound. And it worked out beautifully. I mean, cause yeah, both exhibitions, both have this sculpture where materiality is really, really foregrounded. It's intricate, it's fascinating. They both use really interesting processes of making the work. You wanna to touch it, you wanna linger on it with your eyes. I mean, the detail is so small in both of their works that you're just arrested. Uh, you kind of stop dead in your tracks. and. That has an incredibly intoxicating effect on people. <laughs> Indeed, it certainly it certainly did on me. I mean, I, let's talk about Barney first. So, so it, Redoubt was this body of work that he's produced over recent years. It's still evolving. There's a brand new sculpture in the show, right? But it, yeah. as ever with him, it's enormously complex. But what I loved about it was that um, there was this sense in which the art 
was being made in the film and then we were seeing it sort of displayed around us and this idea of a kind of a fictional world but also Barney's actual real world of making art were kind of intertwined and art and life were sort of so immersed in one another. Now it's very interesting I mean you know Matthew describes himself as an artist who's really involved in making complex kind of narrative structures and systems that often can incorporate various other narrative systems and myths, and this one including the myth of uh, Diana and Akhetan. But it's a really good point you make up. It, you see the film, you see him making these etchings, you see the Huntress character in the film shooting a couple of them, and then you see the work in the show and you see the bullet holes in a couple of these forks. Um, and I've only seen that once before actually in a video installation by Paul McCarthy, who then also incorporated drawings he made in the video in the show. And funnily enough, Paul uses the same foundry in Washington State in the US that, that Matthew used to make the incredible sculptures using these dead trees that have gone through about seven processes of casting and digital printing and are made of copper and brass and wood. And you know, I think the other wonderful thing was having the natural light in the Hayward's upper galleries animating and dancing all over these metallic surfaces and bringing them to life again in a way that, you know, there's just no way you can get that experience without being there in person. Yeah. And, and, and that, that idea of them being alive was really palpable to me, that sense in which these things were in movement. You know, even though they are static objects, there is some sense that everything is in a process of transformation. And that relates, of course, to the thematic structure of, of the film, which is all about, as you say, Diana and Actaeon and this myth which relates to Ovid's metamorphosis. So we're seeing this constant process of change, of transformation right the way through the, through every object and the film itself. There is that sense of movement in everything, isn't there? There is. You know, some of the sculptures have these areas where it looks like you've just seen a volcano erupted that's been frozen, this kind of explosion of, you know, molten metal that's completely chaotic. And there is in all of this work, I think, this incredible wrestling between meaning and chaos. And that is the kind of transformation that I think, yeah, that's at the heart of his art and at the heart of art in general, really. And, and, and also this sort of sense in which uh, he's able to link together this very, very particular memory he has of a debate in American culture and particularly relating to Idaho in the 1990s, which was about rewilding, bringing walls back into the landscape and then uh, the opposition to that from the kind of NRA, gun-toting rural communities. And so, so he's, in a sense, he's sort of relating all these kind of extraordinary, epic poetic themes to a very, very live debate in American culture, which continues to this day. Well, I think more than ever, the two key figures in the film is one, the huntress, who's basically an NRA sharpshooter, who's hunting in the woods and wanting to kill wolves. And the other character is Matthew, who plays a park ranger. So he's basically aligned with the government. And this is part of the polarization in America right now. It's basically the anti-government people who want the freedom to exploit the environment and to do shoot their guns wherever they want. And people who feel that actually part of our responsibility is to safeguard the environment, to make it available for everybody. And that preserving, in this case, having wolves in the mix seems to have a huge impact on the whole ecosystem and life system and environment. 
but it is just one small political angle of many. There's an amazing moment in the film where a Native American is doing a hoop dance and it's bringing up the fact that actually all of this land wasn't Europeans, had other people living there and, and you know, safeguarding it, that our relationship to land is fraught with these histories of conflict and violence and exploitation. And you're having to think about that while you're also looking at these incredibly beautiful images of the sawtooth mountains in winter, the animals, not just the wolves, the bobcats, the big elk. I mean, and Matthew's just, you know, a master at layering these kind of resonant themes into this incredibly multi-leveled sandwich that you could pick apart in so many different ways and you never get to the bottom of it. And of course, it sort of ultimately relates to the history of American art in so many different ways. This is the American sublime reinterpreted, isn't it? Yeah, this is the American sublime, you know, with all the stuff they left out, thrown back in. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so you really have to deal with the full picture. And, you know, there's some real darkness in these sculptures, especially. You know, Matthew has taken these forms of burnt trees and cast them, and in some instances used the tree, but he's weaponized them. They're on the kinds of batteries and tripods that are used for guns, for missiles. They really feel like they have been perverted into some form of weapon. Yeah, quite literally weaponized. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a disturbing sight. You know, I mean, they, they're kind of amazing to look at because they're so intricate and detailed and beautifully realized and the metal surfaces are amazing. But, you know, it's, there's a lot going on there. And I think the great thing about art is it allows you to look at some disturbing issue, which in your normal life, you might be tempted to turn away from, not to really think about too much because it's not particularly pleasant and you see it all the time. And they give you a different kind of energy for thinking about what that situation is. And that's very true of the other show that you've got on, Ikshan Adams, who was a surprise, I think, to many UK viewers. Tell us about Ikshan Adams. Well, Ikshan Adams is a really incredibly talented and thoughtful uh, young artist from South Africa, from Cape Town. I mean, I think these shows go really well together because it's not just this real interest in materiality, though in Ikshan's case, it's, he's working with textiles. So where Matthew's the kind of heavy metal guy, Ikshan's like a lighter approach and you go in there and it feels incredibly uplifting, partly because a lot of the work is actually suspended and floating in the air like clouds, cloud-like forms over a landscape. But Ikshan's show very much like Matthew's, but in a completely different ways about our relationship with landscape, how people move through space, what happens like under apartheid when people are not allowed to move freely through space, but are restricted to certain areas and yet still find ways to make pathways between those restricted places. And, you know, one of the things we try to do at the Hayward is, is to be able to introduce an unknown or lesser known artist alongside someone who's already world famous so that we can, in a way, introduce audiences who don't know about that lesser known artist to somebody they don't know. And this, I, I find it works out incredibly, incredibly well. And that so often people are just as interested in, in the, the artists who nobody knew about as they are in the, in the really famous artists when they get there. But Igshad is 
also making his work in a really interesting way. He works with a group of women who are refugees and he's worked with them on their weaving together. Each one of them is in a sense weaving their own story into the work because they all have different styles. And he talks about how he orchestrates that to get certain effects. And, you know, he was in the gallery for two weeks, kind of, you know, working at putting these clouds up basically out of raw materials and then kind of putting in all the fine details. And it was a wonderful process to, to watch, you know, and this is something, of course, we haven't been able to look at an artist installing their work in over 14 months. And um, to see that come together was really magical. And then to see the effect it has on people, you know, when we, at our opening, I just saw people who looked like they were inhaling laughing gas, you know, and they were just so delighted and enlivened by what they were seeing. And I really do feel that art is like our spiritual oxygen, you know, and the galleries are like the lungs of the city. People go in, they get to breathe in this amazing, inspiring stuff and, and come out feeling, you know, alive in places that hadn't been alive before. That's so lovely. One of the things that's lovely about this this body of work is that it's it has a sort of circularity in the sense that Igshan began his life learning from communities of weaving women and, and now he's working with them again to realise this installation. So there's a lovely circularity about that. Now it's a, it is a wonderful story. I mean, that he was working for an NGO and trying to help mothers find ways they could earn a livelihood. So he learned how to weave so he could work with them on, on weaving projects. And his work also has this multi-layered aspect. It's kind of offering up different ways to look at it. And you can shift between them and it keeps it really alive. And it's also, you know, Matthew's show is glittering with this, these metallic surfaces. And Ikshan's got all these shiny beads and stuff embedded in this tapestry. So they're also kind of glittering. And, and uh, it's a wonderful really uplifting was the word people kept using to describe it to me. And I, I really think that's the right one. The, the title of the show is Kicking Dust, and it relates to this particular dance in his native South Africa. And it's, again, you know, we talked about autobiography with uh, Matthew's show. And it, it, that's there too, because this, this was something he saw as a child. This was something his family practiced, right? Yeah, it's a courtship dance in the northern part of South Africa. And part of the dance involves stamping on, you know, the dusty earth as hard as you can to stir up a cloud of dust around your, your feet. And Igshan is very interested, yeah, also in autobiography. I like the fact that, that this dance element also linked it to Matthew's show where dance is an incredible part of the film, but the interiors, all the tapestries in Igshan's show are also uh, based on the worn out linoleum floors of homes in his neighborhood. So yeah, he's somebody who's very much work is reflecting on his immediate environment, but is doing so in, in a manner that's not just making a document, but is really, you know, extrapolating from it and extending the conversation about it into totally different areas. And able to sort of weave in that kind of level of personal detail and that sort of practical detail of, of, of making, but also the idea of desire lines, which were these roots between communities that he's kind of mapped on the floor of the space, right? Yeah, I mean, you're walking through an installation where there's a huge floor weaving that's in different pieces on the floor. In a way, it looks like a threadbare carpet that where these tracks have been created where people have just been walking over and over again. And it's 
It also can look like an aerial view of a landscape with clouds floating over. And you walk through this pathway, which is based on a Google map image of these actual footpaths created between these two townships, one black South African, one colored South African, that the apartheid government had separated by putting a motorway in between them. And yet Igshan is very interested in the way that people nevertheless made these personal footpaths to connect the two and uh, that these are called, yeah, desire lines, these kinds of, uh, when we go off the, off the beaten trail and make our own path. From what you were saying about Igshan earlier on, and I felt this very strongly with Matthew too, it really shows that the making of installations is a kind of craft to a, to a degree, because it seems to me that both of these artists are dealing with space as an integral element, almost as a material in their work. And it shows very different languages, but at the same time, these extraordinary enveloping spaces and it's something which absolutely is in keeping with the way that you wanted to animate the Haywood in this sort of new era for the Haywood of you know since the refurbishment the spaces being this sort of very dynamic element of the artworks themselves right yeah well it was it's wonderful having two artists who both as you say you know their work is very much about how we occupy space and the sculpture is very engaged with how it's sitting in the spaces of the gallery and how people move around it and what that experience is like. So for an audience that's been stuck looking at art on their computers for the last six months, I, you know, you couldn't really have better shows that give you all the kind of tactile, visceral, physical dimensions that art speaks through, which are often things that you know, are difficult to verbalize, but that are such a crucial part of what that experience is of being in a gallery looking at art. And the Hayward, of course, is a wonderful resonator, I think, for that kind of work. The art and the architecture together, to me, always adds up to more than just the art by itself. It's a, it's a really a complex, total experience. Well, thank you for verbalizing it. You've done a great job. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> Matthew Barney, Redoubt, and Ikshan Adams, Kicking Dust, are at the Hayward Gallery in London until the 25th of July. Coming up, we talk about Eileen Agar, Phantoms of Surrealism, and Louise Bourgeois. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. This year's TEFAF, the Old Masters Fair in Maastricht in the Netherlands, has been cancelled. The fair was originally planned for March, pushed back to May, and then postponed again until September, when it was scheduled to be held just before Art Basel. As Daniel Cassidy writes, TEFAF will move ahead with their second digital edition from the 9th to the 13th of September, while the in-person fair is slated to return for their 35th anniversary in March 2022. The fair's cancellation has inevitably prompted questions about Art Basel, which is due to run from the 23rd to the 26th. 6th of September. Art Basel's Hong Kong fair has gone ahead this week, albeit with vastly fewer galleries than the last fair in 2019. 
Speaking of Asian fairs, Freeze has announced that it will launch a fair in Seoul, South Korea in 2022 through a partnership with the Galleries Association of Korea. Freeze's fifth international fair will take place at the events venue Coex in the city's Gangnam district, coinciding with the long-running regional fair Kiev Art Seoul, featuring Korean galleries. As Anna Brady reports, around 100 international galleries will take part in the first Freeze Seoul, most specialising in contemporary art, although there will be a Freeze Masters section. A list of exhibitors is yet to be announced. And finally, as Vincent Noss reports, 21 years after François Pinault first announced he would build a museum in Paris to house his 10,000-work collection, the 84-year-old French billionaire has finally achieved his goal. At a total cost of $194 million, the Pinault collection will open its doors at the Bourse de Commerce in the French capital. The building, formerly Paris's commodity stock exchange, was built in the 18th century as a corn and flour store for the city on the site of a former royal palace. A 31-metre-high tower built in 1574 for Queen Catherine de Medici was miraculously spared. The building's latest architectural transformation was led by Tado Ando. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, visits can be made through reservation only and a maximum of 600 people are allowed in the building at once, one third of its normal capacity. To read these stories and much more, visit theartnewspaper.com or download our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. From now until the 10th of June, Christie's New York will host a series of live and online auctions dedicated to 20th century design and property from the collection of the noted philanthropist and entrepreneur Sidel Miller. In the 26th of May sale entitled Paris in New York, discover striking works from modern design icons such as Royer, Vautrin and Jouve. View the Tiffany and Design sales on 26th and 27th of May for more exquisite works. On the 10th of June, participate in La Reverie. Explore this extraordinary single-owner collection of decorative arts and design from Sidel Miller's oceanfront Palm Beach residence, which came together making her unique dream a reality and highlighting avant-garde neoclassical 18th century French furniture juxtaposed with the imaginative French creations by François Xavier and Claude Lalanne. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. A reminder that you can catch up on all the episodes of our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth conversations with some of the great artists of our time, including Ronnie Horn, Doris Salcedo and Doho Sa. You can listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, as women artists connected to the Surrealist movement are increasingly gaining long overdue museum shows and market recognition, the Whitechapel Gallery in London has two exhibitions dedicated to women and Surrealism. Eileen Agar, Angel of Anarchy, is a major solo survey, while Phantoms of Surrealism is an archival show looking at the pivotal role of women as artists and as behind-the-scenes organisers within the movement in 1930s Britain. Louisa Buck went to the Whitechapel to talk to Laura Smith, curator of the Eileen Agar exhibition. Laura, the show's called Eileen Agar, Angel of Anarchy, and Angel of Anarchy is actually the title of a wonderful assembled sculptural head with scarves and feathers and all sorts bristling with association. And this was one of the pieces that Eileen Agar showed in the great International Surrealist Exhibition of 1936. And she was the only British woman to be in this exhibition, although there were other women showing alongside all the big names of Surrealism, Dali, Magritte, et al. But she said that she wasn't ever really a Surrealist with a capital S. 
Exactly. So she was thrilled to be included in the International Surrealism Exhibition in 1936, but she never signed the Surrealism Manifesto. She was very pleased to be associated with the movement and to, to be exhibiting so widely and so internationally. But she two things she found difficult. She was suspicious of, she said, the idea of working wholly from dreams, because I think, quite frankly, she didn't believe them, that that was possible to completely work unconsciously. And she was also a bit wary about the male surrealist treatment of women surrealists. She actually said she was a Jungian rather than a Freudian, didn't exactly, she? Exactly, exactly. And I think for her, working from the subconscious was much more interesting than, than the idea of trying to tap into what was completely unconscious. I mean, what she does like to talk about, which I think is absolutely wonderful, is this this notion of womb magic. Mm-hmm. There's this great quote about, you know, the men are all rampant and hysterical and militaristic and actually what's taking over is womb magic. And there are some wonderful, I mean, that incredible big, big painting, the life cycle of an embryo, and there's the, these sort of families of three. So rather than the seven ages of man, mm-hmm. you get embryos and wombs. And although she had no children of her own, one thinks that, you know, she's very much using this kind of very feminine, and I would say proto-feminist imagery. Mm -hmm. I think she was a pacifist. She was very nervous about the Spanish Civil War and the oncoming Second World War. And she devised this theory, which she published in a journal that she co-edited with her partner, Joseph Bard, called The Theory of Womb Magic, where she talks about feminine creativity and the feminine imagination being able to save Europe. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, But a lot of her work from that period, the kind of mid to late 30s, is demonstrative of that theory. Surrealism was very much a movement about subverting society. It was a left-wing movement. I know that Eileen Agar and her husband, Joseph Barr, were very pacifist and against the war and traumatised by the war, but she grew up in an incredibly privileged background, and you could argue that actually her career as an artist owed a lot to the fact that she had a stipend from her father that kept her going... What were her politics? How can we can we tease some some ideas out about that? She never talks really overtly about them. Um, she says that she's a pacifist and she was very interested in the surrealists' left wing politics. There are some really great passages in her autobiography where she talks about how surrealism was actually a movement to change the world, to change world politics, to end fascism. And she was really disappointed that it didn't ever come to anything. Um, so I think. In that regard, she was really keen to to be associated with the movement from that respect. Through the war, she and Joseph, they let their London home become a home for lots of artists and colleagues that they knew fleeing persecution in Europe. And they also let people stay whose homes had been destroyed in the Blitz. So she said in the war there were always about five or six people living in their house. Um, and she also volunteered in a canteen on Savile Row serving meals to civil servants six days a week. So she was very dedicated to a sort of pacifist war effort, if that can be a thing. And Joseph, because he was Hungarian, wasn't called up. So he um, did a lot of volunteering as well. So they, they were very involved, but she doesn't ever directly align herself with a political party. But the works do have intimations of the war. There's that great apocalyptic head that she she makes that I think sort of sums up, in a way, the feeling of doom and impending doom. But then she also does rather exuberant kind of, you know, almost positive paintings during the war, almost to cheer herself up, if, if anything. I think that's what, yeah, that's, that's my reading as well. I think 
a lot of the paintings she made during the war are there's one called Abundance, there's Cornucopia, there's Breadbasket. They're all about feasting and celebration. And I think she was really missing the, the social aspect of eating and hosting dinner parties and spending time with friends. And so I think she was trying to pull herself out of a gloom that she felt during the war. I think it's very interesting that she was this rebellious spirit. I mean, she was brought up in, you know, some affluence mm -hmm. um, in, in Argentina and then came to London, studied at the Slade, but only on condition that she could be taken there in the family Rolls-Royce. Yep. That was the family <laughs> stipulation, not hers, one hastens to add. I mean, she was a beautiful draftswoman. I love some of the early works here. But she also studied Cubism as well. And I think throughout there is this very much this kind of interesting tension and relationship between really quite formal, abstract forms and then sort of boiling associations um, surrealist forms, very richly kind of referential. And that seems to be kind of interesting tension all the way through the work. I think that's one of the things that for me makes her so exciting is, like you said, she's an excellent draftswoman. And that's uh, an undeniable fact. And then she brings to that elements of cubism and elements of surrealism and a kind of colour palette and appreciation of form that you don't see in many British modernists especially I think that um, her use of colour is potentially an influence from Latin America in her childhood in Argentina. I mean all the way through I have to say that I actually met her in, in the in the <laughs> mid 80s I went to interview her um, when she was actually making the last great show that she did of those paintings of rocks, extraordinary rocks in Brittany that she'd photographed several decades before and her studio was an explosion of colour. I mean, tie-dye, you know, psychedelic prints, leopard skin, animal prints, and lots of found objects. And I mean, I think this is one, one characteristic that runs right the way through, right up to the very end, is this absolutely vivid sense of colour. Exactly. And the other thing I love about the rocks is their playfulness and their kind of enduring curiosity in nature and the joy she found in making. I think you rarely see that for an artist who had a career-spanning 70 years that they still have after those 70 years a, a sort of energy to keep making new work and to keep experimenting and she was even when she was in her late 80s and she was unable to paint large canvases anymore she said she just kept scraps of paper and felt it pens on her desk and drew and collaged and she experimented with biro when she was 88 as a new medium so I think yeah i the, the love of colour and the, just the love of making is tantamount to a great artist. She said to me when I met her, she was in her 80s then, she said, painting keeps me alive. And yeah. she was absolutely going full throttle. I'm Just you know, zeroing on the natural forms, I mean, those amazing bulbous associative rocks that she returned to, she photographed um, many, you know, in the 50s and then, and then returned to, to paint in, in, the, in, the, in the 80s. But also just a love of natural forms. Mm. I mean, the surrealists, the, sort of, the, the male surrealist gang particularly, love to find objects in flea markets kits and all over the place, sort of man-made manufactured objects that they then repurpose into extraordinary combinations of things, either as collage or as three-dimensional. She liked nature, didn't she? Beachcombing, rocks, fish, feathers, flowers, pressed flowers. I mean, this absolute love of nature is another great thing that comes through her work. Exactly. I think she said that nature is the best surrealist. Nature is the most surrealist artist of all. Um, and I think she found 
natural forms, organic forms, endlessly fascinating. And what I really like is that you can look back at photographs of previous assemblages or even collages and see the same forms that she then repurposes. So the prawn that is now in the work fish basket used to be on the hat for eating bouillabaisse. And the gourd that is in another work used to be in a now lost assemblage called Phantoms of the Sea. So she was just continuously playing and taking those sculptures apart and making new ones and bringing them back with these objects that she was collecting throughout her life. Eileen Agar seemed absolutely devoted to pushing her art, to experimentation. I mean, from the early collages, to mixing different kind of painterly techniques, to photography, to amazing automatic works. I mean, there's a portrait of Dylan Thomas that's using automatic splash painting, I think, in advance of Jackson Pollock. I mean, really remarkably experimental all the way through. Exactly. And for me, one of the really interesting things is that she came to collage after assemblage. So she started putting found objects together before she started putting found 2D things together, which is usually the other way around. And then putting collage onto her paintings and bringing objects, leaves and flowers onto her paintings. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, the automatic paintings, which she 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 after the war, she tried to come back to a lot of surrealist techniques for experimentation. So she used frottage and decalcomania and automatic painting. I think, again, she was trying to force herself to find the joy that she had once had in painting. I think the war had such a detrimental effect on her that she she sort of lost her love for painting for a bit. And in the 50s and 60s, she was using all of these experimental techniques to try and like pull herself out of this gloom. And she made this series of, there aren't many of them, there are about six to eight poured automatic paintings with enamel and acrylic on canvas, sometimes worked over again with oil. And they have a really, I think, quite a dark energy, but definitely an energy. And she discovered acrylic paint quite late on and then adored that because it gave her freedom to be able to work in multicolours and, and quick drying. Yeah, in the 60s she discovered acrylic and she moved to a much bigger studio so she could paint on a larger scale. So suddenly in the late 60s her work opens up and you get big canvases with quick drying acrylic that she can layer and layer and layer and they look like collages but they're all made in paint. I remember her being really excited about that when I when I went to see her and that she also liked it because it didn't have the smell of oil paint. Yeah. So actually she could, you know, she could really go crazy on these enormous canvases and not suffocate herself yeah. as well. Yeah. I also love the way that she very much played with and off the notion of the woman as a muse. Mm-hmm. And of course surrealism as we know was not great to the female form in its works. You know, women are beheaded and sort of fetishized and objectified. But having said that, it was a movement that welcomed women in. And there's an adjunct to this show, a separate exhibition that you've got, um, which is called um, Phantoms of Surrealism, which are these wonderful group of women, including the great Sheila Legg, who covered her face with roses and stood in Trafalgar Square holding a pork chop at the opening of the great International Surrealist Exhibition in '36. Other women took part as well. And the, the British women are in this great show. And Agar being the only British one who actually took part in the in the international one but she was very much aware wasn't she of being a woman in this role there's some fantastic self-portraits of her naked and adorned and then she even made works of Picasso but taking Picasso as her muse and sort of objectifying him I mean that's all very kind of subversive and you know anarchic in in the broader sense of the word. Yeah, and the two heads, Angel of Anarchy and Angel of Mercy, are casts of her partner, Joseph Bard's head. So she was really reluctant to be a muse and she didn't really let any of the surrealists paint her or photograph her like some of the other surrealist women, like Lee Miller did. She was quite adamant that she wasn't going to be 
a model in their works. And uh, as you said, she rather, she used Joseph to be her muse for the two sculptures and then she made Picasso her muse in Muse of Construction, which I find a really good tribute to him, but it's quite a tongue-in-cheek tribute to him. She also said something really great about the women's surrealists. She said, we did everything that they did in Chaparelli. I mean, the ceremonial hat for eating bouillabaisse, which is in the V&A's collection, which they didn't lend, meanly. <laughs> um, but there's a great Pathé film of, of Eileen walking through London wearing this hat with the most hilarious male commentary mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, and she was fantastically stylish. All the women... I mean, the photographs in, in, the, in the Phantoms of Surrealist exhibition that you've got in, in your archive department shows them being great, but on their terms. Exactly. One feels that she celebrated her body. She was naked in quite a lot of these images that she took of herself, but on her terms. Exactly. I think the way they dressed was an extension of their Surrealist practice. I think there's some great passages in her autobiography where she talks about behaving radically and behaving transgressively, but doing it whilst being immaculately dressed. And I think for her, Surrealism was a whole body thing it wasn't just about the making of her work and also a whole notion for women that they could actually take part in the surrealist movement Mm. what do you think it was about surrealism that made it such a kind of comparatively hospitable movement for women artists to take part in albeit being a bit objectified at the same time I don't know maybe the easy answer is that it's to do with sex (laughs) because they're tapping into their unconscious apparently and and maybe their unconscious is filled with sex and this kind of objectification of the woman's body that reduces them to a vessel there's lots of good literature about the male surrealists making the women surrealists into vessels to carry their ideas and not letting them carry their ideas of their own. And that was what was so great about Eileen Egar was that she actually made the men in her life, Joseph Bard, even Picasso, into vessels for her. And she also had a famous affair with, with Paul Nash as well. Mm-hmm. And they celebrated their love of natural forms together. So she really was, right to the very end, this incredible free spirit. I mean, I think really inspirational. I completely agree. And I'm really jealous of, of like you, of people who actually met her. I've spoken to lots of people who knew her and she just sounds like the most fascinating and incredible woman and with an endless energy even through to her late 80s. No, she carried on. I mean, she was in her studio. The roof was leaking. It was pouring with rain. She was working on these rock paintings and very firmly saying that she wasn't going to get pulled into Picasso's thrall. Mm -hmm. She knew all these people, but she wasn't intimidated by them. And she very much remained her own woman and hurrah for that. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Eileen Agar, Angel of Anarchy, is at the Whitechapel Gallery until the 29th of August and Phantoms of Surrealism continues there until the 12th of December. And The Road is Wider Than Long, an exhibition exploring the surrealist artist Lee Miller and her husband Roland Penrose's travels through the Balkans in the summer of 1938 are at Miller and Penrose's former home, Farley's House and Gallery in Chiddingly, East Sussex, until the 31st of October. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. An exhibition, Louise Bourgeois, Freud's Daughter, opened this week at the Jewish Museum in New York. The show looks at Louise Bourgeois' art and writings in the context of her relationship with Freudian psychoanalysis. The show's curator is Philip Larratt-Smith, and he's chosen to talk about Bourgeois' Passage Dangereux from 1997. To see an image of the work, go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Philip, this is an exhibition about... Louise Bourgeois and Freud. Tell us about her connection with psychoanalysis, because it's a lifelong connection, really, isn't it? 
Yeah, Louise was in psychoanalysis uh, from 1952 to 1985, most intensely from 52 to 67, uh, when she would go and see her analyst four times a week, uh, sometimes five times a week. Her analyst was Dr. Henry Lowenfeld, who had come to the United States in the same year she did in 1938. He was Jewish German, who was uh, playing the Third Reich. And she met him through a consultant, we think, uh, Dr. Leonard Kammer, in late 1951. And the reason she wanted to go into analysis was she'd been experiencing a range of uh, psychological symptoms by in the, in the late 40s. She had insomnia. She sometimes had bouts of agoraphobia. She didn't want to leave the house. She uh, was struggling to reconcile her ambitions for herself as an artist with her duties to her husband, uh, Robert Goldwater, who was a celebrated art historian, as well as you know her motherly duties to her three sons. And her father died in 1951. It plunged her into a deep depression. So um, she decided to um, to seek help to go into analysis. And it turned into an encounter that I think was uh, really reshaped her idea of what art could be for her and uh, continued to inform her art making up until her death in 2010. And the work that we've chosen to talk about, it strikes me that it almost couldn't be more perfect to analyse from this perspective because it's so loaded. There are so many references to her father and to her mother, right? That's right. Passage d'Angereux is, uh, like a lot of Louise's work, overdetermined in the psychoanalytic sense where objects can have three or four or five different meanings. And, you know, I think this layering of meaning is part of what makes the work so rich. Um, it's the largest of the cells that she started making in the 1990s, and it's meant to be a kind of claustrophobic enclosure that originally the, the viewer would have been allowed to enter and walk through. And so, in a sense, by by walking through it, you were um, recapitulating Louise's own dangerous passage. And the, the meaning of the title, I think, and this is my interpretation, is really that Louise was expressing this Oedipal deadlock that she experienced from an early age, which is to say that unlike most children who successfully negotiate the Oedipal complex, Louise remained fixated on the taboo father figure and never totally shook the bonds that tied her to him. And at the same time that she consciously loved her mother and took care of her mother when her mother was sick at the end of the 1920s, she was also consumed with murderous hatred of her mother as a kind of rival for the father's attention. So this ambivalence, which is directed not just towards the father, but also the mother, I think finds expression in this piece. And you know, ambivalence is an interesting concept because it is this coexistence of contradictions. So I hate and I love at the same time. How can this be? This is um, the you know the key to Louise's engagement with psychoanalysis was her uh, you know, that, that it allowed her to arrive at this acceptance of a fundamental ambivalence in her feelings towards her mother and father. Can you talk about some of the forms that those expressions take? So what some of these objects that feature in this cell represent and how, and how they can be interpreted? So at the beginning of the cell, we see a, a breast in uh, white plaster. It's a ghostly white. That, um, for Louise, was really this is the beginning of everything. The, the relationship to the mother is fundamental. The mother-child dyad sets the template for all future relationships. So for Louise, she decided this was really, you know, this is how she was going to begin unfolding this story. And, you know, the, the, the cell, unlike a lot of other cells by Louise, it actually consists of multiple chambers, um, which is interesting because it almost is, it's structured as a narrative. And it's also been compared to a cathedral with kind of bays off a central nave, um, a central sort of axis. Another object that she used was shirt cuffs that were worn by her father. These were tailored to his body, so they had this anatomical specificity. And this is when Louise had started using found objects in her work as a way of making the past more vivid to her, more present. And Louise at the time was in her 80s and then later in her 90s continued this body of work. And having the object itself rather than something she'd made 
was often more evocative to her. It brought the past back more forcefully to her. It was, became, made it an act of recall, but it's also reconstruction. And part of what she did with the shirt cuffs was to arrange them in a stack on the bottom of which is a small bottle of Shalimar perfume. And the Shalimar was Louise's favorite scent. And for her, it really represented sexuality. So the shirt cuffs really are a very graphic and direct expression of the hold that her father had on her psychologically. And by putting the Shalimar there, she's linking it to her own sexuality. So this is often how Louise's work through these kind of poetic juxtapositions of, of, of objects that don't necessarily belong together. Indeed. And, and then there's the chairs, aren't there? These chairs that were always symbolic of her father. Is that right? I mean, chairs are important for Louise. In fact, somebody could one day could probably write a, a PhD on, um, on what the chair means. And Louise's art, it's a very loaded symbol. But she has one electric chair, which is uh, she made as an expression of guilt and punishment. And I think this is, again, related to the idea of wanting something that's taboo, that's forbidden, that is the father. But in the last day, which is the largest in the cell, uh, we see a figure of two stick figure legs on a bed. And this is a kind of primal scene. It's not clear whether we're witnessing the mother and the father, or it's Louise and her husband. It could be any male and female couple. But she's hung the roof of the cell with chairs. And this is something that um, was evocative for Louise of something her father did when she was a young girl. Her father used to hang chairs up in the attic in the grenier, or the the granary in, um, in a suburban house outside of Paris. So it's a direct reference to her biography, but as always with Louise's is transformation. Someone once said about psychoanalysis that in, in any relationship, there aren't two people involved. There are actually six people involved. And that's, you know, there's, there's the person that you think you are. There's the person that you think the other person thinks you are. And then there's the person that you actually are. And the same goes for the other person as well. So there's this kind of multiplication of perspectives that are based on, you know, not just the objective reality, but also, you know, kind of sub- the multiplication of subjective experiences of uh, the other. And I think the chairs speak to that in a sense that there is this feeling that everyone is kind of witnessing this event, you know, which is, again, a kind of lugubrious and diagrammatic depiction of sexuality. And um, the structure of the cell itself permits this kind of um, reinforces this feeling of having multiple views on a central narrative. Because the, the, the mesh out of which, it, which it's made obviously allows you to look in. And for Louise, I think, again, this is, this is a little bit like the function of memory. Our, our recollection of event changes over time. How we perceive something depends on where we are in the present. And um, nothing is ever totally fixed for all that there is a kind of underlying reality. Um, how it appears to us really depends on, on where we stand. Indeed. And of course, one of the great things, and I witnessed these a bit in that there was a small show about bourgeois and Freud in the Freud Museum in London. And I saw some of those writings that, you know, that have, you know, there's, a, there's an extensive body of writings from her analysis, right? So, and it was really fascinating seeing that and seeing her writing about her experiences, her children, her, her mother and father, obviously. Can you say about how much you've used those writings in this exhibition? So that, that show at the Freud Museum, which I curated, was actually kind of the kernel of this show at the Jewish Museum. In a way, this is a kind of a, um, a development and a continuation of a lot of those ideas. And the writings are really the center of this show at the Jewish Museum, even more than they were at the Freud Museum. That show was almost an intervention into Freud's own house. So we hung a sculpture over Freud's couch, which was fantastic, um, yes. kind of Louise's response to Freud. Louise had deep respect for Freud and was, uh, was um, I don't think influence is the right word. It was a major intellectual and emotional encounter for her. But she also took issue with a lot of things that Freud said. She took issue with his perspective on female sexuality in, in some aspects. And she also felt that he did not understand the artist at all. And so 
Um, one of the things that the show at the Jewish Museum hopefully will accomplish is to demonstrate that Louise herself made a, a contribution to the history of psychoanalysis. And that Louise, you know, her insights into the nature of creativity, the link between the libido and aggression and the making of a work of art is valuable and is something that's new and fresh, I think, for, for psychoanalysis. Louise was a great writer. Even if we didn't have any of her art anymore, we would still be interested in reading her writing because it's an incredible written record. And, and, and nobody writes like Louise. She had you know, very, a high level of literary gift in, in the way that she you know, expressed her own you know, psychic landscape. But also, you know, her engagement with ideas, Louise was very well educated. So she had this range of information that she brought to bear on her emotional problems. Yeah, and, and also intriguingly, because of her connections with the Surrealist movement, of course, she had lots of problems with the Surrealists too. She did, yeah. But her engagement with Freud versus the way that the Surrealists engaged with Freud, I think is really powerful as well, because obviously there was a very intellectual engagement in Freud, but, but not an enormous number of the Surrealists really grappled with psychoanalysis as, as an entity and an and experience. So can you say something about that, about how, how you see that triangle, if you like, between Surrealism, her and Freud? Well, I think that the Surrealists were interested in Freudian ideas, but in a, in a mostly superficial way. And the rendering of those ideas was mostly literary and, and narrative in, in their work. You know, so like you think of Salvador Dali's, you know, his sort of depictions of dream iconography in a very conservative form. Yeah. And I think Louise allowed psychoanalysis to inform the very making of the form in the beginning. I think it was something that structured the way that she approached the making of a form and then translating an emotional instate or a psychological state into a physical reality that's much more visceral and convincing to me. And I think that's partly because Louise wasn't representing something so much as embodying it through the sculpture. We said that her sculpture came from her body, that the body was primary. You know, Freud himself said that the ego is first and foremost a bodily ego. You know, our sense of ourselves begins and ends with the body. And so, you know, the the classical division between mind and, and body that had obtained in, in Western philosophy um, since Descartes was really called into question by the psychoanalytic enterprise. My feeling is that also Louise was really um, experiencing psychoanalysis from within. I'm not sure how many of the surrealists had actually actually undergone analysis or had done so for a sustained period. But Louise's engagement was really lifelong. And it was something that she came to not out of intellectual interest, but out of, you know, urgent psychological personal necessity. So to me, it feels like another level of engagement with psychoanalysis. And, you know, it's worth recalling that psychoanalysis wasn't a theory so much as a practice. And I think Louise understood it as a practice. It's something where you are sitting in the, you know, in the analytic situation with the analyst. And it's a dialogue between the analyst and analysand. Uh, even if the analyst doesn't say anything. There's still a feeling that you are in a dialogic relationship. So I think that's important for Louise because she always held that the relationship to the other was fundamental and that identity is formed. It can only exist, can only take shape through the relationship to the other. So I think it, in a strange way, um, psychoanalysis fit perfectly with the, you know, it's the, the process of psychoanalysis, let's say, fit very well with something that Louise was already tuned into on a subconscious level and was already exploring in her art. I know that you've said that it's more helpful to think about bourgeois work to an extent through the prism of, of symbolism as opposed to surrealism. Do you think that's applicable in, in terms of passage dangereux? Most of Louise's symbols are multi-level symbols. And uh, you know, I, I think the psychoanalytic reading of Louise's work is not the only one that's available. You can look at, I think Louise was a master of formal invention. And you can look at her work from that point of view without even necessarily discussing the psychoanalytic side. You know, she, if she takes an object like the, you know, the small glass horse that Le Corbusier gave her, I mean, it was a little, it was a little liqueur bottle that he brought her from Paris. And there was liquor at the bottom of the bottle. A fly had flown into the bottle and got stuck in the liquor and died. And so for Louise, this is a symbol of, you know, 
know, there's sort of the ransom of desire is death. And this relates to the idea that there's this equation of sex and death, which relates again back to the taboo father, you know, that to do something like this is a form of psychic death. It's sort of the light, it's the third rail of the incest taboo. But it also, I think, in, in more broadly speaking, you can look at that in another way. You can, Louise has a relationship to, you know, to the decorative arts. You know, the, the piece itself is fragmented, so it speaks to this condition of being incomplete. It's not a one-to-one code where once you have access to the code, as in a kind of medieval allegory, you know that, you know, a cup stands for knowledge, or you know, the dove stands for, you know, divine grace. It, it, it doesn't work like that with Louise. There's a complexity, I think, from the fact that again, it's overdetermined. So, you know, a, a symbol can mean this, but it can also mean that. You know, Louise was working from her biography, but if you don't have access to her biography, if you don't know the history of her life, I still think the work affects you on a very visceral level. Again, I think because of this relationship to the body. Well, Philip, thank you so much for telling us about this work. Thank you. Louise Bourgeois, Freud's daughter, is at the Jewish Museum in New York until the 12th of September. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. Please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Judy Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Ralph, Louisa and Laura and Philip. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.